I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. On today's podcast, we listen to audio of an event I participated in earlier this month, along with journalists Robert Shear and Mark Cooper, in a wide-ranging discussion of media and democracy, from the Vietnam War to the consolidation of alternative facts in the digital era, held at the Red Cap Theater in Los Angeles. The panel culminated the exhibition Words of Others, Leon Ferrari and Rhetoric in Times of War, that used journalism cut and spliced from the Vietnam War in the mid-60s to indict political practice and the political rhetoric of the time at the beginning of the Great Rebellion of the 60s that ended in the mid-70s with the coup in Chile, followed a year later by the ferocious repression under the Dirty War in Ferrari's Argentina. I provide a background by looking at what was behind the social conflicts of these two periods, the 60s and the present, because looking at social conflict and crises best reveals how society works when it isn't working. Robert Shear, renowned journalist and former editor of Ramparts, the great alternative magazine from the 60s that Ferrari used for his work, tells the story of Ramparts and provides an inside look, as no one else can, of the way the war was conducted, including the widespread secrecy and surveillance of the FBI in an attempt to crush dissent. Journalist Mark Cooper looks at media delivery in the present digital era of democratized information that has introduced new potential and new dangers. He says the new curbs to the democratization of the media come from an abundance of unfiltered information and fragmented consciousness. All this coming up on Jacobin Radio. All right. Everybody can hear all right. Thank you. This exhibit, I hope you've had a chance to see it, because Ferrari exhibits, it uses journalism that's cut and spliced from the war in Vietnam in the mid-60s as an indictment of political practice and the political rhetoric of the time. What's interesting is he's doing this in Argentina in the mid-60s, and so this is a period when the Onganilla dictatorship is on, only to get worse under Lanuse, and then there's a brief progressive period uh, with Campora and then Isabelita, and then it gets really ugly under the Videla dictatorship that brings the dirty war and savage repression. So the socialist unrest that blossomed at the time that Ferrari was putting together Palabras Ajenas ended in the southern cone of Latin America with the Chilean coup of 1973 and the spread of dictatorship and repression and disappearances in the mid-70s. And I think you could almost say that this too was the end of that period. So Bob and Mark are both going to be talking about the war in Vietnam as a central event, but looking at the way that uh, the media evolved in these uh, periods of social and political rebellion. And as I mentioned, that Ferrari's work goes from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, and Mark, I assume, is going to look at the 21st century uh, media and democracy that evolved against the background of uh, deep economic disruption, bubbles, and world crisis that are still with us and also the democratization of the media and the new attempts to curb it. And so what I want to do here is to kind of provide a background, and it's going to be very skeletal, behind the social conflicts of these two periods. Because looking at social conflict and crises is really the best way, I think. It reveals how society works when it isn't working. So 
there's two periods to look at. First, that of the 60s, and the second one is the present one. And interestingly enough, the first one, the crisis that, you know, I'd like to highlight the year of 68, comes in part at the height of the boom, the post-war boom, when society is only beginning to move into a downturn, but still at its peak, and nevertheless you have this huge political and social crisis. The second period, the one that we're living through, on the other hand, is the expression of the breakdown and the inability of the economy to provide even the basics for the whole population. It's not all that different than the 1930s and the period of the Great Depression. So the earlier period of the 1960s, as I mentioned, began a kind of epoch of social transformation in the name of the expansion of freedom. So you had the civil rights movement, and you have personal rights developing, sexual and cultural. And this drive for freedom is a very big part of our time, uh, as before, and it extends right to the present. The single focal point, the sort of key to the period, this earlier period is the Vietnam War and the anti-imperialist revolt that it sparked. Whereas today, war is a constant. It's been successfully consigned, nonetheless, to the background. And the same goes for the struggles in the developing world against, uh, let's say, oppression and what we used to call imperialism more generally. Those struggles are still going on, but they're kind of beneath the surface and overshadowed in coverage by a lot of noise that's all around us. So just to kind of wrap those points up before going into a skeletal overview, I wanted to mention that in the 60s and the 70s, as I said, the problem of the economy was just beginning. And so the other side that's not really stressed often from this period is that, and this is important, this is also the period when it's the beginning of an attack on working people in basic industry in classic form. So you know, sort of capital versus labor and unions, and it's often called the employer offensive. Today, of course, the economy isn't delivering at all. And if I just use the word deindustrialization to kind of describe what happened in the United States and other what we call first world countries, but here it means that 90% of the population needs to fight to transform the system in order to have a decent life. And we live in this uncertain economy Whereas in the first period that we could say that uh, you could call the traditional conflict between the union's industry and government policy, what we often call the class struggle, now the problem is different. The economy can't deliver, so the attack is across the board. It's not just industrial, it's everyone's, and you can see the contours of it by the continuing attack on living standards, and this is on display right now in the so-called tax cut plan that's moving into reconciliation. So before I go into some of the events of the period, and a lot of you will remember them, the end of the period of expanding freedom, and now we're facing attacks on those freedoms. And it's not just the culture war backlash. Today we're facing, unlike in the 60s, where the conflicts went along with this tremendous cultural revolution, today we have an attack on the cultural revolution And also, because the economic pie isn't growing, the state's response to any kind of struggle for reform is repression. So it's contradictory because there's no economic boom like there was in the 60s so that you could buy people off and uh, co-opt them. Uh, uh, There's no attempt to do that now. Now you have an attack on expanding freedom, a cultural attack, and it means that the state's only response is repression, and our only response then is to fight. So um, so, so this is... 
I'm going to end, I think, when we get up to the period of Occupy in the present, but I want to go back and, sorry for this sort of back-and-forth nature of it, but just to talk about, you know, what happened in the 60s. As you had this, as I mentioned, a fight to expand freedom, you had the civil rights movement, and you had urban insurrections in the United States in cities like Newark and Detroit and Watts. And this was going on at the same time that you had uh, the U.S. war escalating in Vietnam. And so it was leading uh, to a generalized protest that that brought out the questions of race and class and later gender and other cultural issues. And if you look at 1968, the year of the culmination of the boom and the beginning of these big revolts, including labor, you see the economic or geographic points of reference are are east, west, north, and south. Uh, 1968 is the peak of the post-war economic boom. Then it kind of stagnates and tapers. Uh, And some of you may remember until the oil shocks of 1973 and the beginning of this long downturn. And this, in turn, is a period when the traditional class struggle intensifies with the growing attack on unions and working people. So the year begins in January 1968 with the Tet Offensive, uh, which shows that the war in Vietnam can't be won while worldwide opposition to the war escalates in tandem. And it's also the case, and we know this now from McNamara and others, that they knew that they couldn't win in Vietnam, but they also couldn't find a way out that didn't seem like it was going to be a defeat. And, of course, we know it was a defeat for U.S. imperialism. And the amount of bombs dropped, the death and the carnage that was, havoc, that was wreaked there, I think seems to indicate that the United States now was uh, using the war in Vietnam to show the, the rest of the world the social cost of revolt and independence from the system. Um, and so you could say Napalm, Agent Orange, bombing them into the Stone Age was a pretty high social cost for trying to be independent. And all year long, you saw social and political conflicts uh, directed against the military and bureaucratic elites who responded with repression. Um, and so you go from the Tet Offensive in January to the assassination here in April 1968 of Martin Luther King, right at the height of the civil rights movement, to the French May events in France in that year that revealed a significant radicalization to the left of the traditional left parties. And then in June, you have the assassination of Robert Kennedy right here in Los Angeles and massive dis- demonstrations over the summer in Chicago and elsewhere at the Democratic Convention. And then you kind of travel to Mexico in the Summer Olympics where the athletes raise their clenched fists, maybe the sort of earlier equivalent of taking a knee. But you also then have the Mexican government killing protesters and disappearing them at the Tlatelolco massacre. And anti-war demonstrations now are worldwide. And literally, from London to Paris to Rome, Berlin, New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Buenos Aires, Santiago, this is a struggle that's literally lighting up the world, this struggle of the Vietnamese people for independence and the rain of bombs that are visited upon them from the most well-equipped and strongest military in the world, and yet they can't win. And the crisis is generalized, and the radicalization continues. Now, I mentioned, I'm just going to do it very quickly again, is you have this spectacular 
events in May in France, where students link up with wildcat strikes of up to 10 million workers, and a revolutionary situation develops there that challenges power. At least, you know, for a few days, the movement seemed like it was going to overthrow the government. And what was new here is that this was part of this worldwide radicalization that was to the left of the traditional parties that were thought of as the left-wing parties, the communist and socialist parties. They were outflanked and eclipsed by this broader radicalization that had similar features all around the world, just like the one now does, too. Demanding freedoms, demanding an end to this stultifying life, the nine-to-five, getting and spending. And then the other part of it, that these people in the streets were also turned off by the Soviet bureaucracy. And so they weren't looking at the so-called communist world as any form of a model. Um, And that was generalized, too, here. I don't know how many of you were on demonstrations. I remember always people would, you know, shout... Uh, you know, the U.S., love it or leave it, why don't you go to Russia? Well, that just didn't resonate. It didn't resonate then, and it, and it didn't resonate thereafter. And then, you know, the crisis that uh, took place um, in the East, uh, uh, you could just say that this radicalization and generalized revolt crossed what we then called the, uh, the Iron Curtain, and it was shown in Czechoslovakia over the summer, where actually beginning in the spring, you had the Prague Spring, Um, which was an attempt from above to have socialism with a human face, uh, reform from above before it explodes from below. And it demonstrated the global character of this radicalization. And as I said, it, it, because it started from above, from the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia, um, pushing for relaxation of controls, this was the most threatening to the Soviet bureaucracy. And things were also restive in other Eastern Bloc countries like uh, Poland, East Germany, and even uh, Yugoslavia. So as in elsewhere, though, in Czechoslovakia, they weren't just demanding uh, a, a relaxation of control. They were demanding democracy, freedom, and autonomy against bureaucratic coercion, and the stultifying grayness of life. Um, And this process was stopped by repression when Soviet tanks uh, rolled in on August 20th of 1968 in Czechoslovakia. Literally night fell there. And there's many more geographical points to mention in this worldwide revolt. I'm kind of doing like a back-and-forth Cook's travel tour. There was guerrilla activity in Brazil against the dictatorship, mass protests in uh, Ireland and in Britain against British rule, uh, generalized uh, rebellions against dictatorship, state repression, anti-imperialist struggles, anti colonial struggles worldwide. And the, I, even though, you know, it's hard to sort of quantify what came from it, what, one of the things I think you could say is that this, this struggle for freedom and autonomy, in a way, stayed with us. And then you can take us up to the present, where we look at the renewed crises that we've all, you know, just been going through since 2008 to 2007 and eight, And this time, it's vastly different uh, conditions. So you have the collapse of the Soviet bloc, 
and not that it was a model, but significant that, significant that it's gone, and the worldwide embrace of neoliberalism that exacerbates the gaping and growing inequality throughout the world. So when you have 2008 crisis, you have they'd explode when the housing bubble burst in the United States, but the same practices were going on elsewhere in Europe, and like the 30s, this crisis was global. And Bob's written a very good book on it, I'm sure that you've uh, read a lot. But the response to the crisis of 2008 was to bail out the banks. So Wall Street gets saved, but not Main Street. And following the bailouts, everywhere, but especially in Europe, you saw a generalized policy of austerity and the massive redistribution of wealth uh, and income that is going upward that seems to be continuing even, you know, on a more rapid scale now, given what they're proposing in this uh, Congress. Uh, And so what did you see? All over the world, you start to see revolts to this. In Greece in 2008, I don't know if you remember, they had, uh, they canceled Christmas, (laughs) students and nihilists, over police brutality. But what you began to see were general strikes in Greece that just continued from 2008 on, and a profound social crisis there by 2011. And uh, this was punished by the Southern European banks. Then the Arab Spring begins in 2011, first in Tunisia, then spectacularly in uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo. And there's squares, encampments, and occupations from North Africa to Europe to um, the United States, to Mexico, all over Latin America, and back. And so it just seemed to be rolling, these protests. Um, and it even hit places that hadn't been you know, directly affected by the crash of 2008. So something else was also going on in these generalized protests against this neoliberal world. In Spain, you had the Indignados and the uh, M15 movement, which took to the Ramblas uh, and other squares across Spain, while back in Greece, Syntagma Square was uh, occupied. All of the countries of southern Europe especially have um, variants of these protests and encampments. And these protests are against austerity, but they're also against the cutoff future that people see, that they don't have a future, that this economy doesn't promise them anything. Um, and the governments were completely non-responsive. You know, we used to say that if there was enough street heat, they'll pay attention, and they just ignored them. They ignored the occupations, they ignored the protests, and continued with the austerity policies. And then, magnificently in the United States, Occupy erupted, beginning on Wall Street, spreading across the entire country. At one point, there were something like, I think, 17 hundred different occupies in every town and city across the country. And the slogan, we are the 99%, resonated and found support around the country. And the political conversation changed from, if you remember, accepting the grand bargain to now talking about mounting inequality. And unlike the 60s, the people in these encampments and out on the demonstrations weren't fighting in solidarity with the victims of U.S. imperialism. They're fighting for themselves and for their own future. And this is really the unifying theme that you see all over the place, that capitalism can 
can't provide, censorship can't work. Many people criticize Occupy for sort of petering out and not being better organized and not knowing what to do next. But the truth is that this whole round of revolts was repressed. And in Greece and Spain, the movements then moved to an electoral expression, Syriza and then Podemos. This also happened in Portugal with the left bloc and later the Sanders movement here and Corbyn in Britain. But as we know, the right-wing populist movements took ascendancy from Brexit to the catapulting to the mainstream of Marine Le Pen in France to Trump in the United States actually winning. And they won because they attacked austerity and the neoliberal stewards who were tone deaf to the economic suffering of much of the population. And the other point is that to make is that the weakness of organized labor everywhere after decades of neoliberal assault meant that the relationships between the radicalized middle classes and shrinking organized labor sector and this new gregariat or precariat, those who live on really, you know, job to job uh, without any sort of security, altered the landscape of traditional protest. And it's no longer left to industrial unions and strikes. It's everybody. And so Trump is one result of this last round of crisis and another, perhaps you could say, and these two will, about the concerted attack on the fourth estate. Trump calls it fake news. Of course, we've always had that sort of critique of the media that critiques power. But with concentrated ownership of the media, the democratic component is definitely compromised. It's not absent. Of course, you probably know that the FCC chair, Ajit Pai, plans to strip net neutrality on December 14th, and that the idea will be that it'll create pay tiers for internet speed and access, and that certainly is an attack on democracy and, and freedom of the press. And in that regard, I really didn't mention the role that technology and social media has played in this latest round of protests, which is to provide the kind of connective glue to the movements in this period, making rapid, large-scale response to political outrage, and I think Mark will probably, with his expertise, talk about that. So I only want to conclude by saying that there's no solution on offer to the crises of capitalism. There's fewer jobs, more insecurity, attacks on the social safety net that continue, and it's really on steroids now with the provisions of this new tax cut so-called reform. But I have to say at the same time that I'm optimistic and there's grounds for optimism in this new situation because opposition now to the status quo and to the neoliberals, including the Democrats, is mainstream and generalized. And what you can say from that, it takes us back to those earlier struggles, is that the human impulse for freedom and autonomy that's glimpsed in all of these conflicts and clashes joins the struggle to put the economy at the service of the community rather than the reverse. And that offers great promise. Thank you. That was my talk at an event earlier this month in Los Angeles. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. The next speaker is journalist Robert Shear. My takeaway from everything you just said has two aspects. One is that it's all fucked up. And the other is that we're part of the problem. And there's really a danger in a panel of this sort, what Halberstam was trying to get at with the best and the brightest that there's basically a failure of logic, politics, thought, common sense 
in the appraisal of all of these things. And I was listening to some of the tapes, McNamara, all these people. And nowadays, people are, oh, Trump, he's so god-awful and everything. Well, but I've interviewed many of the recent presidents before they became president and so forth. And they were all stupid. They, uh, they all didn't care. Uh, stupid in the sense of indifferent to what they should be concerned about. They all were playing a game. And by the time they got to be president, they didn't know which end was up. They just had lied so much and you know, maneuvered so much and everything. And my takeaway from this whole business, I just think of my own parents. My mother left after the Russian Revolution. Two of her sisters had been killed by the Tsar, by the Bolsheviks, denounced her Jewish socialist bun. Why she belonged to that, I have no idea. But she could get herself killed pretty easily. And my father was a German Protestant, and he left Germany after World War I, and we had lots of relatives there, and so forth. And I look at how history interconnected. And they were garment workers, and everybody lied to them. The media lied to them. The leftist media lied to them about wonderful things going on in Russia. The capitalist media lied to them about wonderful things going on in the United States and so forth. And basically, they were screwed over, and no one really cared about them. And my takeaway from covering politics for the last 50 years or so, 60 years now, is that it's basically most people get screwed by people who are using them. And when I think of the place, what I've seen in relation to, to Vietnam and to Southeast, and I've been there, I was there before, a lot of this stuff happened, I was there after, I've gone back and forth, so forth. I think of like Laos. We dropped more bombs. It's interesting, I just wanted to start with one thing that drives me crazy is from the Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. And Peter Coyote, whom I really love, he's a great guy, and he's stay, saying one of the stupidest things I've ever heard uttered in mass media. <laughs> Uh, he says, uh, he's talking about American involvement in Vietnam. It was begun in good faith by decent people out of a faithful misunderstandings, American overconfidence, and Cold War miscalculation. Now, we're talking about a situation which somewhere between when McNamara at one point in the fog of war says three and a half million died, but that was an underestimate. We're probably talking about eight million dead. We're talking about incredible devastation. I was in Laos uh, before, early on, 64, so forth. Uh, Laos is a, I could go into villages and people didn't know they were living in a place called Laos. Uh, I could bring pencils and they were excited. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about a, a, a level of, of, of living that was simple in the extreme. And we dropped more bombs on Laos than we did on, on Japan and Germany in World War II. It's bizarre when you think about this. Uh, I was in Vietnam, in Cambodia. Uh, I, I was up at uh, you know, Angkor Wat in 1964 and 65. I meet a guy from the CIA. He tells me, oh, it's great. I had to get here because this is going to be destroyed in the war. I said, why are you going to, what do you mean it's going to be destroyed? So we have to bomb the hell out of Cambodia. I said, why? He said, because the Ho Chi Minh Trail is coming. So I said, there is no fucking Ho Chi Minh Trail. I've been traveling all over the place. This is a fantasy of your foreign policy. He didn't give a shit. And they did drop all these bombs. And millions of people died, and they totally dislocated society and everything. And Vietnam, carpet bombing, you know. Or this place, Korea. I happen to be one of the few people you'll ever meet who's been to North Korea. And today, by accident, because my wife keeps throwing all my books out, I was uh, looking at one of my old journals, 
And there are my, I'm sorry, no, I apologize. I was, it's just a light joke. I, I, let, let's lighten the mood here. You don't throw my books. But I was afraid it might get thrown out. So I was reading my journal from North Korea, of all places. And I thought, well, I'll be reading the, the rantings of lunatics, right? Because Kimmel's son was there and everything. Actually, I was taking notes because the guy was making a certain amount of sense. And in North Korea, as in most of the country I visited, it was quite instructive. They took us to one museum after another. And let me tell you, this was an ordeal for Eldridge Cleaver, who was spent enough time in prison. He didn't want to have to do this. Uh, and we got lectures. Well, one museum is what the Chinese did to North Korea. Okay? A thousand years. Another museum was what the Japanese... I have all these notes. What the Japanese did. Then another museum of what the Americans did. This was the same story when I was in North Vietnam, when I was in China during the Cultural Revolution, when I was in Egypt at the end of the 60s. Wherever I went in the world, I discovered everyone had massive disagreements. Uh, everyone had been fucked over. Everyone had been treated as if their society, their people were worthless by some other people. And, and I understood the dominant factor in human history is that people of power are, in fact, not uh, 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 people of good faith <laughs> no. and decent. They are fucking torturers, murderers, they're indifferent, <laughs> they're contemptuous, and they give not a bit of concern for ordinary people. That is cannon fodder. Those are people who are meant to be fucked over. You play with them. You play with their societies, you play with their history. Okay, And the one wisdom that I, I know we're not allowed to celebrate the founders of this country uh, for good reason, they massive contradictions, but they had one bit of wisdom that has been abandoned, and they abandoned it themselves in their genocidal war against Native Americans, and that was to avoid foreign entanglements and to avoid overreach and to avoid what Rome did and what Spain did and France did and England did, which is all this empire building and manipulation and ha so forth. So let me just say something very uh, quickly uh, about what this whole adventure in Vietnam was about. Okay? Uh, and it's interesting. First of all, th you don't have adults watching the store. You didn't then and you don't now. Trump is not an exception. Trump is just more obvious. He's more blatant. He's not listening to his advisors. If he listens to his advisors, he'd tone it down, he'd tweet less, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is we never knew what we're doing and we never care. Okay? So let's take the basic construct of the whole Cold War period, that there was an international communist movement that had a timetable for the takeover of the world, right? <laughs> it was unchanging, inevitable, and so forth, Okay? Tell that to people shopping at Costco where Vietnamese communists and Chinese communists are fighting for shelf space. That's right. Okay? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it, it was an absurd construction. The Sino-Soviet dispute goes back before there was even the communists in power in China. It goes back to the 20s. Okay? Uh, uh, nationalism was the dominant feature in all of these places. That's why... I, brought you through those museums. And it was interesting, from my podcast, I interviewed two guys who were in the CIA who were specialists on Russia, Mel Goodman, who has a new book out, uh, and uh, Ray McGovern. 
these guys, Ray McGovern, brief first President Bush on everything. So I asked these guys, because I wrote this book in, in 65, you know, uh, on Vietnam, how the U.S. got involved in Vietnam, this booklet. And so I asked them, I said, you know, I was just a guy at Berkeley in graduate school. I came out of City College. I was in the Center for Chinese Studies and everything. And very early on, I knew that there was not an international communist movement. A communism was nationalist, it was not coherent, it was cohesive, and it was un, would be constantly changing and accommodating and subject to all kinds of forces. And I said, how did you guys really believe you were facing some kind of monolithic movement driven by Marxist-Leninist ideology? And I said, if I could figure this out, and you had access to all this secret information, all these spy reports, how come you didn't know this? And they both, you can listen to the podcast, they're quite good. And they both said, of course we knew it. We knew it from day one. Everybody knew it. Except in our institute, the CIA, we were told don't bring it up with the senators. Don't bring it up with the president. They don't want to hear that. Okay? They have other agendas, other political things, the military industrial complex, whatever. You don't bring it up. But of course we knew it. So the first question you have to ask about this whole incredible tragedy of, of that post-World War II period, is where was intelligence? Where were the universities? Where, were, you know, where was all of it? And it didn't exist. It didn't exist in the way, you know, it's like, like the lesson of Germany, the question I've always asked about Germany. How did the most uh, scientific, educated society with the highest level of music <laughs> A great sense of cleanliness and order. And there's an old question. I've gone back to Germany, I don't know, 15, 20 times. I talked to my uncle who was in the German army. I've always tried to struggle. How did they, these people, and Jews actually were in better shape there than they were in most of Eastern Europe, better than in France and, and so forth. I said, how did they become the greatest barbarians of modern history? Okay? It's a big question. Would you never, we never bothered to answer. We never really bothered to discover. And my answer is that all of these things aren't much of a restraint against madness, against nationalism. I, I can tell you this because I was at the Oakland Raider game on Sunday. And uh, you have some kind of a feeling of what a mass hysteria can be about. And, and, uh, and, and the reality is these things we count on to protect us from madness and to bring in some sensitivity and concern, they're really not very strong. And maybe people like violence. Maybe they like torture. Maybe they like exploiting people. Maybe they don't give a shit. Maybe they have a small... I don't know what the answer is. That's a complex thing, Eric Fromm. A lot of people have written about this uh, and try to answer that. But the fact of the matter is the simple models don't work. The idea that we'll educate people, the idea that we're rational, that facts matter, real news as opposed to fake news, <laughs> all of these things... The fact is, the greatest madness we've seen in modern history came in a society that had all of these protections. And we've seen it with our own society. Okay? We were proud of our limited government. We're proud of all, of, all the things we talk about. And the fact is, the, the best and the brightest, the best educated people, and I spent the last half century interviewing these people, and they actually were talking gibberish. Or is it gibberish? You tell me. I, I don't know. Uh, they can tell you the distinction. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, facts didn't matter. Logic didn't matter. None of it mattered. None of it mattered. Why are you carpet bombing these people? Okay, well, take Korea, for example. We have this crazy country now, right? How did it get to be so crazy? What was the Korean War all about? 
What was the, you know what the Vietnam War and the Korean War were really all about? We were shocked as shit that Mao Zedong won in China, right? You remember the big argument? You know, some of you are old enough. Who lost China? Right. right? That's what McCarthyism was about. Oh, who lost China? Like it was ours to lose, okay? And then you had to answer that. I had to do something about it. So what do we do? Ive Stone, who destroyed his, his journalistic career writing a book, The Hidden History of the Korean War. Any of you even remember that? He dared to assert, uh, as I did at Ramparts, about the Six-Day War in the Middle East, that it was mostly a trick. It didn't have to happen. They were lured into it. And the real enemy was China. And that was going to be a move to go across the Yalu River, knock out China. Well, it didn't work that way. The Chinese poured across the Yalu, and they conquered <laughs> Korea, okay? Vietnam had that, other, that kind of target. It was China, and how to block it, and so forth. Uh, and, and so they figured out this, these gimmicks and these games, which made no sense at all, and all these people who got bombed and were cannon fodder, and the, the, nobody cared about them. And so let me just specifically say something about Vietnam and ramparts, because I that was the theatrical thing that we're concerned about. I, I wandered into this. I had gone to Cuba uh, on a lark at the t after the Cuban Revolution. I wrote a book with a guy named Marie Seitlin, who's been at UCLA a long time, great guy. And we wrote a book, and it destroyed my academic career. Uh, <laughs> I perished publishing. And, and uh, why? Because the people doing social science you know, were all called warriors, and they were getting the money, and they believed it. Robert Scalpino, all these people uh, believed in that crap. The only sane people on the Berkeley campus were in the physical sciences and mathematics. We had a very radical mathematics department and all that. When I ran for Congress up there in Oakland, Berkeley, I had only support from the sciences. I couldn't, with the exception of good old Franz Sherman, I couldn't get it from the social science. They were all on the payroll of the CIA and everybody else. And so the fact matters, okay, we got Cuba wrong and everything. And I was, so I had to go to work at City Lights Books. And I went over there, if you want to know about alternative media and so forth, let's not glorify it. And so that was my alternative life, buck and a quarter hour yeah. working for Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And a bunch of magazines came in, and one of my jobs, heroic job after three years of graduate school, was opening the bundles in the morning and putting the books out and sweeping the floor. And there were articles coming in, and you know we had a great collection of magazines. And I was reading the warning from uh, uh, Jean Le Couture, Ellen Hammer, Philip Devier, Bernard Forlater, uh Graham Greene, of course. But they were all saying the Americans are really going down the wrong road in a place called Vietnam. Okay? They all knew it. They'd had their war. They were familiar. They were expert. And so you could read, you know, the, the publications. And it was all laid out clearly. That's how I came to write this thing in 65. It's brilliant. It holds up perfectly and so forth. There was no mystery. Okay? And, in fact, the French returned this imperial venture which Eisenhower warned against, Roosevelt warned against, and so forth, uh, was financed by the United States. We paid 80 to 90 percent of the war of the French return, uh, and made it possible, and so forth. And so I was trying to figure this stuff out, and I remember Madame New came to San Francisco, and that didn't strike me as very smart. They were, and the Buddhists were starting to burn themselves. And I tried to figure out, what the hell is going on in this place? And why are we gearing up for a war, just as we've done with Vietnam? So this is where the Ramparts part comes in. And I'm reading this stuff, and I realized there's one big miscalculation. They've picked a Catholic guy from the Merino Seminary in New York, a guy named Noden Yem, to be the George Washington of this country. Right? Because Cardinal Spellman liked him. Uh, 
Okay. The only problem is that the Catholics in that country are only 10%. 90% were Buddhists and so <laughs> forth. So that hadn't really quite worked out. And so I did this, some research and so forth. And then I went over to the stacks in Berkeley, and this is where you do great investigative journalism, and I found a packet of material that nobody had bothered to open, uh, but uh, some guy had died, and he'd been in something called the Michigan State Project, and his widow had donated it, and nobody had even looked at it. So I opened the ribbon, I blew off the dust, and inside I found all the documents that he had, uh, about how Michigan State had been used as a front by the CIA to create a secret police in Vietnam and create the basis for Noden Dam's government to prevent the Geneva Accords from happening in the election of 56, which Eisenhower said Ho Chi Minh would have won with 80% of the vote. Okay? So it's one of our great anti-democratic experiments and so forth. We were going to save of Vietnam, and, uh, and this showed the complicity of academics, and that's where the torture program began, by the way. Torture did not start uh, in <clears throat> Iraq. Uh, we had well-developed torture program, and, and by the way, one reason we got to read the Pentagon Papers is Tony Russo, who was with Daniel Ellsberg in uh, making copies, mm-hmm. was at the Rand Corporation, and Tony Russo's job at the Rand Corporation was going over and going to Vietnam and going over the interrogation of captured Viet Cong who were routinely torn, tortured in the most brutal way, thrown out of airplanes, tortured in every single which way. Tony Russo was offended by this. He joined with Ellsberg in trying to print and print publishing the Pentagon Papers, which clearly laid out all of the stuff that I'm saying. Okay, just a comment on alternative journalism and how accidental it is. Uh, the, the New York Times, Life magazine, everybody had been cheering on this stuff in Vietnam right through the 50s, with the exception at the beginning of the 60s, a great old police reporter named Homer Bigger in the New York Times started to smell a rat. There were a few other people, okay? But when I had my documents and so forth, I said, wow, I got to go and check all this out in uh, Vietnam. And so there was a marvelous alternative journalist who had the realist magazine, Paul Krasner. And Paul Krasner, I knew, had suddenly come into a little money uh, because he had produced a great agitprop thing called the Fuck Communism Posters. <laughs> Any of you ever have a Fuck Communism yeah. poster? <laughs> where it. were you? So on college <laughs> campuses in the 60s where you couldn't use the word fuck and Lenny Bruce was being arrested for using the word fuck, right? Paul Krasner had these red, white, and blue posters, a little thing like this, and it said Fuck Communism, and it had stars. And so in the dorms and everything, if the dorm leader said, you can't have that poster, people said, well, you favor communism? You know, so it became this great educational tool. He had the money, and so I said, uh, look, I got to go to a place you've never heard about called Vietnam, and could you give me a ticket? It cost $1,575 or something. Uh, I'll even take one wait. Both ways would be nice. Uh, he wrote me out a check. I went, and I began the study, okay? No one would print my study. I did all this work and everything, except, and this gets finally to a theme that's in this exhibit, about the role of the Catholic Church, okay? And the Catholic Church had been very right-wing, Cold War, and so forth, except you suddenly had a pope, Pope John, right? Patrick Terris and so forth, and he supported, just like we do now, had a good pope. And this pope was for peace, and he was for social justice and so forth. And there was this crazy magazine, Catholic Literary Quarterly, which 
published Merton and people like that. It was very nice. Uh, came quarterly. And uh, my wife at the time, uh, a different woman, happened to, to be working at a mutual bond place with the wife of a guy named Warren Hinkle, who has a book coming out soon of his writing, yeah. and uh, who was the editor of Ramparts. And she said, my wife said, oh, my boyfriend, husband, uh, is doing this really interesting stuff, but no one will publish it. No one will touch it because it attacks the Catholic Church. And she said, oh, that my husband loves to attack the Catholic Church. <laughs> That's what his magazine is all about uh, because they are inspired by the Pope and the cardinals all hate the Pope. So they published. That's how Ramparts came to be involved with Vietnam. And then the Fund for the Republic, Robert Hutchins, published a pamphlet. I bring it up to relate to the question of mass media. The mass media was not interested. Ramparts first was got on the map because Senator Frank Church, who was a Catholic, attacked what was going on in an interview with Ramparts, and the New York Times put it on the front page because they had a Catholic senator attacking the role of the Catholic Church there, okay? And that was the story of Ramparts. Ramparts, which is featured in this thing, came to be in existence because the mass media failed totally. Totally. And uh, as a result, we were able to publish, you know, what the children of Vietnam, which is what turned Martin Luther King against the war. We showed that this bombing was aimed at destroying children, families, peasants, was not military use of weapons, carpet bombing, and so forth. And we had the photos. We did all that. We went to Vietnam. We had <clears throat> Master Sergeant Don Duncan, who broke with the war, highly decorated, writing about it. We found plenty of GIs who would tell the truth. Cy Hirsch was writing for us, and so forth. And we were able to have a big impact on people's thinking because we were willing to do it and the others were not. And as I say, the proudest claim of Ramparts was that Martin Luther King picked up our magazine in an airport and looked at these pictures and he told the person he was with, pushed away his food, and the person said, so on record said, uh, why aren't you going to eat? And he said, after looking at these pictures, I can't enjoy food anymore and I have to speak out against the Vietnam War. And he did it at Riverside Church and uh, he broke with a lot of folks. They said, Martin, stay in your lane, don't do this. And that's the speech in which Martin Luther King said, I have to condemn my government because I can't talk about nonviolence in the ghetto if my government is the major purveyor of violence in the world today. That was the speech he gave. And Dr. Spock also joined with him. And there was the development. So as a media comment, the mass media failed terribly, terribly, never came to grips was what the war was about, and it required alternative media. We weren't the only one, but we were particularly effective in doing that. So that's my spiel. That was a talk by journalist Robert Shear at an event I moderated in Los Angeles earlier this month. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. The final speaker on the panel is journalist Mark Cooper. I've been retired for a couple of years. I used to do a lot of these panels, and I haven't done many recently, so I've got a lot of things to say that are disconnected. <laughs> I was going to try and do a Zizek imitation, but uh, <laughs> I don't have uh, the sniffles. 
I want to just make a couple of general comments before uh, responding to what my friends here have said before I give you my specific uh, take on things because my topic is uh, the very small topic of democracy and media. <laughs> I'll be able to cover that in a couple of minutes. First, I want to say something about democracy, which is you should never take it for granted and you should not be disdainful of whatever democratic institutions might still function to some degree. You don't want to lose them. As it turns out, I think about 20% of the audience here are Chileans. Uh, and uh, I'm married to a Chilean for the last 400 years. And uh just seems like 43. And... Uh, I'm an honorary Chilean, and I think I can speak for them when I say that for those people who have uh, gone into fits of panic and hysteria and over Donald Trump, uh, and even the horror that is the Republican Party today, I can say for the Chileans that they wish that Pinochet was like Donald Trump because that was a dictatorship. That's what an authoritarian state looks like. Trump uh, is dangerous. He has an authoritarian personality, but he's not very popular, and he's becoming less popular, and uh, I'm actually, within the doom and gloom of the immediate moment, I'm rather optimistic that he's going to be defeated in some form or another if he doesn't just die first from pure... Uh, bitterness. Uh, now, uh, to be a little bit more serious, uh, oh, I also want to, before I become serious, I do want to, for those of you who were not here in the 1960s, looks like most of you were alive in the 1960s, if not already uh, getting Social Security, but uh, if you weren't here in the 60s, I do want to underline the fact of how important uh, Ramparts magazine was. There was no alternative media in the United States, and what Bob has said is true. There was no point in dealing with the mainstream media, and the mainstream media did not stop the war in Vietnam. I can tell you that. By the time uh, Walter Cronkite made his weak statement, millions and millions of Americans had already resisted the draft and fought in the streets to oppose the war. Uh, so he was a couple of years behind the times. Uh, in fact, people have asked me, uh, people who are hysterical now about the Internet say, oh, what would happen, what would have happened in Vietnam if we had, uh, during Vietnam, if we had fewer Washington correspondents? And I said, well, we probably wouldn't have had the war uh, because the correspondents and the mainstream media were transmission belts of uh, national security ideology, which promoted the war. And the press, for the most part, with, with the obvious exceptions that we're all aware of now, stands indicted for its um, absolute uh, 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 obeyance to the uh, philosophy and the mysticism of the Cold War. I mean, it, you know that's the way it was. Um, and nobody had to tell them to do it either. Uh, they did it quite well on their own. Uh, now I'll so I, I, I want to acknowledge that 
and uh, it's uh, it's great to uh, that we're here these many years later uh, to be able to to recognize it. Uh, but Ramparts was, at least for my generation, uh, uh, it was it was we lived for that and we learned from it and it motivated us. So I want to make my major point first, which is, uh, actually, I started listening to Zizek as a joke because he was kind of a comedian. Uh, But he has some interesting things to say, and I'm going to steal a line from him, which is, with all due respect to my friends, I'm not that interested in the mass demonstrations like Occupy, etc., to paraphrase Zizek, I'm more interested in what happens the day after. After the millions of people go home from Tahrir Square or from the park in New York or from the anti-war demonstration or from the election of Syriza, uh, what happens the next day uh, when life returns to normal? What, what has changed in the system? And the answer is not much because uh, to agree with my friend Susie, uh, we have no idea what the alternative is. None. Uh, my wife and I are fortunate enough to have spent a lot of this summer in Prague and Budapest, and they're wonderful places. I don't suggest that you propose the idea of socialism to them, however. That's right. uh, even if you make all sorts of clarifications, of, well, I'm not that kind of socialist, I'm a different kind of socialist, I don't think you're really going to get very far. Uh, the, the, the Soviet occupation uh, of Eastern Europe was as traumatic for most Eastern Europeans as was the Nazi occupation. It's just a fact. You can add up numbers and play the atrocity game, but there was nothing fun about the um, Soviet occupation. So what I want to say is that many of us, uh, many of my friends, many of my associates who are uh, social critics share the same fault and the same flaw as military officers have throughout history, that they're very good at fighting the last war. Uh, They look backward instead of forward Uh, because it's easy. It's much easier. For me, for example, I am more of an anarchist than a Marxist, but I could certainly spend hours reading about the glorious days of Catalonia in 1936 uh, or whatever. And in my own experiences in Chile, I can, I've written a book about it. I can talk about it for days, months, and hours. But it doesn't really get us very far because that was then and this is now. And we are not in the same world. We're in a new world, and I'm going to, in the next 10 minutes, I hope, approach that new world through the question of media, though there's many ways to approach it. You can also approach it through economics. You can approach it through demographics. You can approach it through balances or of global power. But let's look at media. I'm not going to waste your time uh, whining about uh, CNN or, uh, you know, what this guy or that gal said the other day at the New York Times, the LA Times. Everybody in this room knows that. Uh, there's nothing to be learned there. Uh, so I think that the media, the transformation of the media that we're currently going through, gives us a, a peek 
at the fact, at the, at the rather challenging fact, that we're really at the crossroads of a new world. And it's going to be up to the citizens of this world uh, what that's going to look like. And because uh, conditions are changing very quickly. Some of the, to use some of the good old rhetoric, yes, the basic contradictions that we're aware of from the uh, study of uh, uh, polit- uh, political economy, et cetera, yeah, those still exist and they're still real and they still have real consequences. But the world is much more complicated than that. Uh, I disagree with Susie to some degree. I think that those in power do a wonderful job of co-opting, co-opting and not just repressing. The word of choice in the United States, of course, is choice. You're told that you have a choice of everything. You can buy a frappuccino or a cappuccino for $10 and nine cents go to hungry Guatemalan children. So you do well by spending uh, $200 a month on coffee. You're helping the world. You're saving trees or whatever the hell it is this week at, at Starbucks. So I would posit this. I would say that we are literally in the year 1492. Literally. And I'll tell you why. Something happened around 1450. And in 1450... Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type in the printing press. And he did it primarily to print the Bible. Little did he know that he was also going to spark an acceleration of the Reformation, of the Renaissance, of the Enlightenment, that the printing press was going to facilitate not only the Bible, but secularism, literacy, democracy, civil society, education, the scientific revolution, all come from the invention of the printing press. And the reason I say that we're in 1492 is that in 1492, which was 40 years roughly after the printing press was invented, if you said, hey, you know, there's going to be an enlightenment, there's going to be a French revolution, uh, there's even going to be a revolution in England, you know, with Cromwell and whatever, people say, what? What are you talking about? We're printing Bibles here. This is a Bible machine. And we're more than happy to pay three months' wages, because that's what it costs, to buy one of those first Gutenberg Bibles. So nobody really, maybe da Vinci who was of that period, could foresee it. But very few people could predict what was going to grow out of this printing press. Well, as it turns out, we are about 40 years, i.e. the amount of space between the invention of the printing press and 1492, which is a convenient date. Uh, We're about 40 years into the digital revolution. Now, that's all. And uh, we have seen what that has produced in 40 years. And uh, there are some idiots out there who claim to know what it's going to produce. But they have no idea. Because the digital revolution is going to have a greater impact on the world than the printing press. And that is both an inspiring thought and a terrifying thought. Uh, 
and I have no idea which way it's going to go. But let's talk about the pros for a minute. Why is that even relevant to this? Well, there's certainly an aspect of the printing press, of the digital revolution, which has democratized information. I'm not stupid about surveillance, etc. We're going to get to that. But it has democratized it. It has, when Bob and David Horowitz, uh, that's a joke, uh, were, were working on ramparts, there was a scarcity of information. If you were a 20-year-old and you wanted to know about Vietnam or the CIA or the NSA or the Agent Orange, there was nowhere to go. You couldn't find that out. There was no place. There was a scarcity. Today, we live in the opposite. We live where there's an abundance of information. And the question is, how do you sort through that? How do you filter that? How do you utilize that? Uh, And that has, again, tremendous potential and tremendous dangers. Uh, But the gatekeepers are gone. Uh, Donald Trump has done the favor of temporarily, and I do stress, temporarily resuscitating a couple of newspapers. But they're in their, historically speaking, they're in their death stages. Uh, The Washington Post is floated by the $100 billion that Jeff Bezos makes from his uh, workers at Amazon who live in their cars. And uh, that's sort of a sui generis situation. And the New York Times uh, does some very good reporting and has flourished under Trump. But these are temporary uh, phenomena. Uh, Newspapers, anybody who tells you that newspapers have a future is lying to you. Um, They do not. When we talk about a real future, uh, you don't get most of your information from a newspaper. You get most of your information from this. And while newspapers produce some of that content, Marshall McLuhan was correct when he said the medium is the message. Content or information is radically influenced by its carrier um, for reasons of physical space, attention span, whatever. Television is very different than a newspaper And digital information is very different from the other uh, carriers, even though it takes some aspects of them. What else has uh, the digital revolution done? It has not only democratized information because it is overthrown to a great degree, the gatekeepers, but it has also lowered the cost of publication to zero. Now, it's your problem, the cost of publication, that is to say, putting up a web page with information on it doesn't cost anything. What about the servers that don't crash? Well, that's an issue that we're going to get to. Good. So somebody wants to give us a couple of million dollars to keep Truth Day going because we we haven't discovered that. There's no question that that's the truth. How you find an audience and how you keep an audience and how you produce the revenue, we don't know the answer yet. We don't have the answer. But as in all revolutions, 
political revolutions. The old system is destroyed before the new system is consolidated. And we're sort of in that transitional period now. The old system is being destroyed, and we have many attempts at a new system or a new uh, ecosphere of information, but we don't have those answers either. We have some prominent attempts like Truthdig. We have uh, people who do individual blogs. Uh, we have all kinds of models. Some work, some don't. We don't know how that's going to turn out, just like nobody knew what the printing press was going to do 40 years after its invention. I guarantee you that some poor son of a bitch who bought one of those uh, Gutenberg Bibles for three months of wages said the same thing that... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was three years of wages. Uh, uh, said the same thing that Bob just said, which is, when in the hell are they going to make a Bible I can afford? Uh, because this bit of not eating for three years to buy this beautiful Bible, this isn't working. This is not a good model. Uh, so at least compared to Gutenberg, I hope Bob will give me that much, the cost of, of, of publication is very low. The barriers are very low. Uh, we saw... And the third aspect, a positive aspect, is that uh, it also reduces the potential cost or the cost of potential organization. Okay? Potential organization uh, that goes beyond just a hashtag or posting a fucking safety pin or a pink hat on your Facebook page. Next person who does that, I'm going to come over and beat you to death. Uh, it doesn't do anything. But if you want to look at a recent example, and not many people have because the mainstream media didn't get it. When Obama was elected in 2008, they said Obama's team was tech savvy. That's another word we should get rid of, tech savvy. They were tech savvy. They knew how to go around the mainstream media and speak directly to their followers on social media. That's a really primitive understanding of what happened. What was revolutionary, not about Obama, but about his campaign, was it was the first campaign in history where the technology didn't just allow Obama to speak to you, it allowed Obama's supporters to find each other all across the country and organize. Unfortunately, when Obama came to power, he made it, he made the Obama for America or the Obama website, uh, he turned that into a, a top-down, um, you know, hierarchical, vertical uh, uh, mechanism, a very traditional rather than a horizontal one that could have engendered social movements. But, of course, Obama didn't really want social movements and neither did the rest of the Democratic Party because they get messy. Uh, but that possibility still exists for us. Uh, what are the, what's the counterweight to that? The counterweight are things like uh, the end of net neutrality. That's going to be a problem. I don't think that's going to be a permanent feature. We'll see how that works out. But it's certainly a threat. The issue of surveillance, the issue of tracking, the issue of uh, these large monopolies uh, being able to um, 
I don't care that they know what I'm doing. I just care that I keep seeing the same goddamn ads all the time. I, I haven't been able to figure out if I've already bought a bicycle, why do I need to see uh, 400 ads for bicycles over the next three days? Uh, and then there's also the bigger issue of um, what role entertainment plays in our society. I like entertainment as much as the next guy. But uh, the problem that we face in this country, uh, I would submit, um, is not police repression per se. The problem that we face is a fragmenting of our consciousness by constant diversion and entertainment and the myth of choice. People feel important because they get their name in a funny picture on their checkbook and don't pay much attention to uh, how the banks are run. So let me just say that the issues that social activists confronted over the last 75 or 100 years are real, but they provide very, very little in understanding what we need to do. And I don't have a prescription for that. I agree with Bob that we're all fucked up. Uh, and that people in power tend to fuck over other people, regardless of their ideology, by the way. Uh, and uh, uh, we've had, uh, Bob and I have had some exchanges over places like Cuba and Venezuela, but, you know, these are not models for us, I'm sorry to say. We have to think of what are the real alternatives to the system of global capitalism that we confront. I hate the word neoliberalism because neoliberalism is not the problem. The problem is capitalism. And capitalism can be quite enjoyable for those of us who are fortunate enough to benefit from it. And many of us do. But most of the world does not. And in most countries of the world, capitalism doesn't work. And you cannot just simply say to those who live under that type of oppression, oh, don't worry, the system's in crisis, it's going to collapse, and there'll be a socialist alternative. Uh, it means absolutely nothing. The question is, what can we do? What can we think of? In fact, to come back to my favorite comedian, Zizek, if you don't know who he is, ha have some fun and look him up on the web, on YouTube. The speeches are hilarious. To come back to him a bit, this is a time I'm not opposed to acting. We need to act. We need to engage. But we also need to think. We need to think. We need to figure things out. We're not going to do it, by the way. We're too old, the people in this audience. It's going to come from young people. Radical change and revolution... God forbid revolution. Radical change never comes from old people. It always comes from the young. And they're the ones who are tasked now with thinking of an alternative for a more humane and more just society. That was journalist Mark Cooper from a panel I moderated earlier this month that also included Robert Shear. The event took place on December 5th in Los Angeles, California at the Red Cat Theater. It culminated the exhibit of Words of Others, Leon Ferrari and Rhetoric in Times of War. 
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.